Welcome to season two of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Antonio Capasso, alongside fellow co-host Brad Fullerton. Both Brad and I are practicing trainee sport and exercise psychologists and use our experience and knowledge to bring sports psychology and wellbeing concepts to life. But we don't do this alone. We speak to highly specialised guests who also share their personal and professional experiences with wellbeing and sports psychology. On the pod, we encourage listeners interested in all things sport to tune in whilst we provide insight into what working in the world of sport is like. We ask our guests the right questions to provide you with a deep dive into their specialised area of expertise and hope that after listening to each episode, you have taken something away with you. We want to redefine what making it in sport looks like. We hope that by speaking to guests who have made a successful career in sport, we can do just that. Now, let's get into another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome back everyone to another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. Um, we've got another fantastic guest lined up for today's episode, but before I bring him in and introduce him, I'll of course ask how my lovely co-host is doing. Brad, how are you getting on today? Yeah, I'm good, mate. Um, up sharp this morning to the cards, so I was just grateful that I guest could sort of slot us into his, his busy schedule, but nah, nah, all good. It's not been feeling the greatest this week, but um, Friday morning recording the podcast, I think I'll... I think I'll be all right. <laughs> ah, well, you're looking good now with the sea salt spray in me, so. Anyway, so without further ado, I'll introduce our, our guest for today's episode. So, um, so the guest for today's episode um, is a fully qualified sport and exercise psychologist. He's got various experience working in the field of sport and exercise psychology. Um, just to name a few, of the roles he's had. So he's worked at Bolton Wanderers as an academy psychologist. Um, he's worked as a Leeds academy psychologist at Middlesbrough FC uh, and is currently working with Blackburn Rovers on that under-21s team. Uh, Ryan, how are you getting on today, mate? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me along and I'm looking forward to the conversation with both of you this morning. Yeah, no, as, as Brad sort of said, we really appreciate you jumping on. Um, it seems to be a theme now that we're getting guests on early on a Friday morning, so we, we do apologise for that. Uh, very early starts of what is uh, meant to be a bit more of a chilled day in the working week, I think. So if what we'll do, we'll jump straight into it. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your experiences in sport um, growing up. So what was your sport? How did you get into it? Um, and then sort of what level did you play at as well? Yeah, so football, as you've mentioned, different experiences, but a lot of them have come in football. Football was always my sport growing up as, as like a child as well. And and yeah, it was, I think it was just that social bit that naturally your parents just nudge you into doing something to keep you active. Um, and again, being exposed to it young, you just get the bug for a sport or a few sports. And and yeah, football was mine. So started at that probably like four or five years of age and just went through all the way to this kind of 16, 17, 18. Um, not at any of the levels that I get to work at now um it was only ever kind of sunday league but it it kept me busy it kept me active it it obviously exposed me to competitiveness and, and kind of sport in general and again I, I love the fact that i now get to work in some of the environments that 
I could have only dreamed of being in as a as a young player. Um, that's fantastic. And and as I got older, I moved away from football slightly. I always say that it's because it was really difficult to organise like five sides. Whereas I moved into running, where it's just me, so it's easier to fit into life. Uh, there's less organisation. So I used to do kind of cross country running at, at school. Um, and I've just kept that going just as a way to keep myself active. And I know you can ask about self-care and stuff like that at some point. So that'll undoubtedly come back up again. Yeah, excellent. Um, really good. I can definitely relate as well to the differences between doing team sport and the organisation that, that takes versus being able to just go away and, and train on your own when it comes to something like running. Um, so that's great. And um, just interestingly as well, like, as a person interested in sport growing up and, and and obviously you were you were uh competing to a certain level in 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 your running and, and with the football what were your own personal experience of well-being or psychology in sport so i think knowing what i know now i would have been a much better athlete mm. unfortunately um i'm not saying i would have got to any lofty heights but i think i would have just enjoyed and been able to navigate kind of the the experience better because mm-hmm. a lot of it again you're just going through it and you don't know what you don't know typically so yeah the, this awareness of sports psychology and, and being able to mentally prepare mentally process reflect on what's going on mm-hmm. that would have been really really useful um especially in maybe some of them setback moments where a game isn't going the way that you want it to just having the awareness of going oh, actually yeah this is what i can do rather than being like just not good enough and, and yeah being able to protect myself a little bit um hindsight's fantastic again I would never have been really really lofty as a as a performer but yeah I think it would have just been good to know some of this sooner and it's nice mm-hmm. being in that position getting to speak to people at that age now to ensure that they have the awareness they have the knowledge they have an understanding about this area of kind of mental performance and, and psychology Ryan, I was going to ask you, mate, because I, I probably played at relatively similar level to yourself. I always get quite jealous when Tony starts talking about his performance test days <laughs> and how much of an amazing athlete he was. But do you think that like not having experience of performance slash elite sport as a youngster limits your capability as a practitioner when, you, when you're older? Like, are you now? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, it's similar to when I get asked, oh, if you've not, if you don't know a sport, do you think you're going to be good as a practitioner in it? And I think it's separate. I think it's actually, it, it doesn't matter if you've not worked in that sport. The bit that matters now for me doing my role is do I know psychology? Do I have an applied understanding of how to work with people? Mm. And then the the domain, the environment that I actually work in doesn't matter as much. I have to be aware. I have to be eager to learn. I have to want to get involved and show a willing, willingness that if I don't know that I want to know some of the terminology, I want to know what it's about. I care and I'm interested. But yeah, not having like a, an elite experience within sport, I don't think hinders because I think it, it benefits because you get to see it from a different perspective. Because everyone, you can kind of pick one of the roles that, that you mentioned earlier, everyone in there, likelihood is to spend kind of five, ten years plus athletes, coaches, support staff, maybe working or playing in that sport. Whereas I haven't, or not to that level. 
and therefore my perspective, my understanding is different. And that can be a really good thing as well. Uh, but I also have to be mindful of, because I haven't lived the life that they're living. Again, I have to be mindful that I've, I've got a lot to learn off them too. And going in really open and go, look, I don't know. I'm being comfortable to say, I don't know. I've gone into, I don't know, it's beyond kind of football, but I've gone into like boxing and, and ice hockey and rugby league. They were never sports that I played. They were never ones that I really ever engaged in. But the psychology underpinning the foundation is the same. We're working with people. They just happen to work in a slightly different environment. So it looks a little bit different and the needs are a little bit different. But the the bit I'm bringing as a practitioner is the same. I'm doing the same job. It just looks different. So hopefully that answers it. Kind yeah. of what your interest was around that. Yeah, definitely. I just think sometimes in football, especially, you could maybe have people who turn their nose up at you if you haven't played at that level and they maybe don't allow you that same opportunity. But I like the point on using it as an advantage because when I've worked in other sports like tennis and cross country and I don't have mu- I don't have much knowledge of it, it works to your advantage because the players feel or the athlete feels that they can explain something to you without you going, oh, that's a that time's a bit rubbish in it or like that kind of pattern of play was a bit rubbish where you I'm just like, all right, tell me about that then. Why was it so and so? Why do you think it was like that? And kind of yeah. play the not say play dumb, but you almost you play the good guy role. It's just okay, yeah. talk to me about it then. Instead yeah, of going, instead of judging. Yeah, like you say, it's that playing dumb, but playing the novice that you are. Just yeah. being, I don't know. Can you tell me? And then that helps with some of maybe the relationship building or it just helps the conversation. And people get that you you don't know rather than pretending to be someone or have the knowledge that you don't and if you do that it's really easy for people to call you out because guaranteed they're gonna know something that you don't um and yeah I, i've got kind of been in privileged positions to work with people with like international caps i'm never gonna have that experience but as a practitioner i use that go fantastic you've lived it this is my idea can we develop it or can you criticise what I'm thinking with your knowledge so that by the time it goes in front of athletes or coaches or, or an organisation, it's polished and being comfortable to do that, that it's never going to be perfect when I sit and, and come up with a workshop or something. I need to bounce it off people. And if everyone is more knowledgeable about that sport than me, fine. I just need to know my bit, the psychology, and then it'll get polished with everyone else's experience and being comfortable. To be criticised is is a big one as well. Yeah, really good conversation. So I think, Brad, you definitely have uh, upsold how uh, to the levels that I got playing sport, but I'll take it. It's <laughs> lovely. Um, but yeah, I think as well, Ryan, what you, what you were speaking about, um, I guess a couple of minutes back now, was uh, around sort of that wishing you had had that sort of same advice and experience there. And I think definitely something that I relate to a lot like I, I mean it's it's why I got into sport and exercise psychology was sort of based off personal experience based off in and like just based off stuff I find interesting but I don't know about you but I find that it, it almost motivates me more as a practitioner to want to go and continue helping you know young for me at the moment it's, it's young athletes um you know thrive and develop because it's like it's the more you read about stuff the more you're like you can sort of see 
where you can like link in and where you can support the these young players and yeah I just wonder if, if that's sort of what helps motivate and fuel you as well yeah I, I think it's kind of an element of me as a person wants to help others mm. that is obviously central to some of the role that we do of actually helping people and, and it's nice that it takes this form of helping people in sport or influence them of getting to where they'd like to get to there's mm. like that outcome bit of what level like career etc but also the second part of our role is about ensuring that they enjoy it along the way we've gone we yeah. could get you there but it could be awful and you could hate it so let's make sure that you actually enjoy and are satisfied with all the different challenges along the way and the fact that our role is part of that we've gone can we get people to where they would love to get to appreciating that not many will but we just need to make sure that everyone enjoys however long they get yeah. and yeah they're kind of my you mentioned motivation they're probably my passions is, is yeah. the word I would use they're, they're the bits that really get me up and and make me want to do my job to go you're actually helping people or having an influence on someone's mm. experience that, that I didn't get which yeah. is fine I'm comfortable with that I get to help other people and say hopefully have a positive impact on on everyone yeah no, brilliant um on speaking that obviously that's that's where you're at now but um could you perhaps tell us about your journey to how you got to where you are now and um obviously because this podcast we're targeting at, at young young athletes um but we're also wanting to, as well as giving them advice around how they can develop their performance and improve as a person it's important to also raise their awareness of perhaps other industries in the sport that they can get into and that they might be interested as a possible um, career option as well as as being an athlete um, so I think it'd be great if we could just go along you know briefly go along your storyline to, to to get to where you are now because obviously you're you seem to be loving where you are now so um, yeah. it'd be great to hear about it yeah I love it I, I've loved it today there are challenges there are difficulties but I enjoy what I do so it makes it easy to talk about it um, yeah, did my undergrad in sports psychology at UCLan and went and did my master's as well. So that was four years of education. Um, then I did the BPS route. So I went on QSEP, kind of stage two, and did that over three years. That was when you can actually start kind of operating a bit as a practitioner with a supervisor. Um, so someone kind of loosely overseeing what you're doing and and again, at that level, though, you get to start speaking with athletes, you get to start kind of the doing of psychology. I think it's important for athletes, coaches, different organisations listening to to know that you're not the finished article at that point, um, mm. that you're, you're not necessarily getting a practitioner who is really, really confident because we're still learning. Even now, I'm still learning. Um, so yeah, so if you are working in and around a trainee, we have a really, really good understanding of of kind of the, the theory, the knowledge, and this is our opportunity to start developing some of the practical skills. Um, so yeah, that I know going in different organisations beyond the ones we've mentioned, and I think some people think that you're going to get a fully fledged, finished, polished practitioner, and the reality is you are still a trainee, and it isn't going to be perfect because it isn't perfect now <laughs> um by all means so i think that's important and the same with athletes as well like you're going to get someone that's passionate that's learning and you're going to learn alongside them learning their role as well 
Um, and then, yeah, finished QSET around about this time three years ago. So I've been chartered for three years now. Um, so, yeah, as a pathway, it's long. You think I started my undergrad at 2012. I'm like 11 years of studying sports psychology now and, and learning and doing kind of six, six and a half years of kind of practical applied experience. And yeah, I just enjoy it for the reasons we've mentioned and it just suits me and, and what I want to do. And by no means am I finished either. We're obviously speaking centrally on motivation, but yeah, I'm already on to like, what can I do next? What What's the next bit coming up? And yeah, it's not going to be a finished article anytime soon. So yeah, brilliant. I think um, any anyone that's uh, listening who's a trainee psychologist, I think that's the perfect answer for if you ever get answered up, you know, when do you feel like you become a psychologist? You, I feel like you never do. You're always evolving. Um, that's certainly what I've experienced and that seems to be the theme going on. Yeah. Brad, I don't know if you've got anything that you want to share. Yeah, there. just put it on the point that, you know, I'm still learning and um, something that you can actually say to your client as well. Something that I did with with a client um, towards the back end of CCAR, I just said, look, I'm... I'm not that confident. Um, some of this gives me a bit of anxiety, um, but I know that you're just learning as well. You've never worked with a sports psych either, so we're in it together. And then I think that normalises everything from the start, and then it puts you on like the same level. So a big mm-hmm. thing is like respect, and so immediately we're seeing each other eye to eye. So I'm not this practitioner that knows it all, and I'm gonna tell you everything. <coughs> and give you solutions we're actually on the same level um and you can sort of help them to arrive at stuff that works out best for them so that that works really well for me and it's something i'm probably gonna probably gonna carry on for a long time until that day where i go i know everything about sports psychology (laughs) which i don't think is ever gonna happen (laughs) no there's, there's always something new that comes up but again just to emphasize your point brad but that's exactly how i operate and i know kind of a lot of different colleagues will operate on that that just because we're a psychologist doesn't mean that we're the expert it's actually the person in front of us the the athlete the staff member the coach it's your life it's your experience you know more than i do about that and we're just a facilitator to ask good questions that might aid reflection, they might connect dots that maybe they've not connected and see things slightly different. But I'm not the expert. I just know some more about psychology, maybe. But again, it's your life. That's You're the expert in that. And it's kind of playing into that, which, like you said, it's a comparable level then. There isn't this power dynamic where I'm going to tell you what to do. It's actually not as a collaboration. And if you don't want to go in that direction, then we won't go in that. It's, It's your support. Yeah, brilliant. Really good. I think any players listening as well, if you're wondering why your psychologist or wellbeing coach is asking you so many questions and probing you, it's because you're the expert on yourself. You know, as I think that's the important part, isn't it? We're all individually different. So you could have all the knowledge in the world, but you know, it's it's what is right for that specific person, which is so important. So I'm glad we brought that up and and highlighted that that's a real important factor there. So thank you for that. Um moving through to us our next question um you've obviously you've worked within different football clubs um in as as a sport and exercise psychologist so could you tell us a little bit more about these two roles um 
Well, actually, I think it's more than just two roles now you've had within football clubs. Um, but yes, yeah, so if you could just tell us a little bit more about these roles that you've played. Yeah, so the earlier role was, again, going in as a kind of relatively new trainee um, into kind of an environment where there wasn't an established psychology programme. So again, it was kind of like a bit of a blank slate. Do what you would like at the same time of going, but I'm still trying to find myself as a practitioner, which is a little bit daunting, as we've just said. Um, and yeah, being able to create something that met the needs of the environment. So it's kind of a program delivery level and and kind of meeting the needs of kind of the athletes within that environment on like a one-to-one -one basis and then team and, and, and working alongside staff. Um, moved on to a different opportunity that there was an established program and it was taking that and progressing it further to get a little bit different but actually being able to be kind of in that environment substantially so kind of full-time basis and and really progress everything that was being done which meant that yeah the one-to-one -one support was there the, the group level bits were there but there was more like organizational elements there was more like policies and ways that we work um there were more conversations in and around kind of sports science and, and medicine and going how can we kind of gently make sure that psychology infiltrates everywhere mm. not me as a psychologist but the psychology happens everywhere um so i know we'll probably come on to kind of one of my passion areas was transition uh so a lot of or some of the work that we did within that organization was looking at how do we bring players in what do we do while they're here and then how do we move them on because they're either going to move on to a first team they're going to go out on loan and kind of temporary leave and then come back or we're going to release them they're the three options for leaving the academy so how does that happen what do we do how do we support them how do we reintegrate them and then what does support after they've left look like so how do we kind of protect afterwards that it isn't just a release and you're gone which i know no clubs do now there is aftercare that there is ongoing support it was just tweaking what it looks like to make it ours and appropriate for what we wanted to do as a club yeah great i, I really obviously i like everything you spoke about there but i really like the, the bit where you're speaking about how you were looking at putting psychology into the other areas of sports science almost and I think it's ensuring and I, I guess it comes through work raising people's awareness of what sport and its psychology actually is but it's like yeah using it to support and help improve um, <clears throat> different areas and disciplines of sport and exercise science it's not working against it I feel like there's always this there's a little bit of like a I guess like a stigma where people feel like we're there to almost tell them they're wrong and like tell them off rather than actually know like a lot of the stuff you're probably is doing is, is great but we're like how can we make it even better um, yeah. I don't know if that's something that you perhaps found that you that was a little bit of a barrier maybe yeah and I think it was a barrier probably within myself as a practitioner of what mm. I was told through education that the rule might look like and then actually in practice you're like it doesn't really fit it doesn't really fit for me to do everything and and kind of protect sports psychology and make it mine it's actually everyone's doing it as you've said coaches are exposed to it different support staff are exposed to it through their training and they have a really good awareness of it and it actually doesn't just have to be me doing the psychology I'm just mm -hmm. the psychologist and there's a difference that 
yeah, we'll have some different conversations with athletes. We've obviously got different awareness. We've got different level of knowledge, but it shouldn't be that when I leave the room, the psychology stops. Yeah. And some of my learnings as a practitioner were understanding what it is that I do and being a little bit vulnerable, as Brad was mentioned, and being a little bit open and, and saying, right, okay, I can I can deliver, but actually it doesn't have to be my voice. Like there is this really good bit of a psychology that we need to do, but I don't have to be the person at the front telling the squad that. I can actually mention it to the coaches and then they can deliver that message because it's more powerful. And you're like, okay, that that was a a good realization for me yeah. of going, I don't have to stand at the front all the time and be the psychology. I can actually deliver it subtly, knowing that the coach has the coach's voice is more powerful than mine ever would be. So the players are more likely to listen to the coach. Fine, we'll just get the coach to deliver the message then doesn't matter how we get there as long as the athletes the players get the message for example and that was a big realization for me of going okay that changes how I work now it isn't just this protected area I can actually use everyone to deliver and and uh, impact the messages and, and again you take the organizations that I've worked at I can't do one-on-ones with like 180 190 players but I might be able to do a workshop for 12 coaches and then they can go and tell the 190 mm-hmm. and probably it'll stick better as well because the players are going to listen to their coaches more than they would listen to me so yeah it, it was a, a different way of working and it helped me manage the workload as well because otherwise yeah. you, you physically can't split yourself in two or three or four or ten so it was a different way of doing right and i was mm-hmm. going to ask mate like so you said in the in the first row there that there was no psychology sort of embedded into the the club with the second example you said there was a program that was already developed so did that ever leave you to question whether that program was something that you felt comfortable delivering like was it designed by someone else because you know I've had experiences in the past where you if you create something it's it's based on your values and your philosophy but if you go into someone else's you maybe go oh, i'm not too sure about this but i kind of need to deliver it because the club's hired me to do it yeah and i'm i know you don't mean it this way but i'm going to pick up on what you just mentioned there that you create a program and it's yours and it's based on your values and, and your perception which is completely fine and i know i'm gonna say something that you didn't say but as a practitioner it isn't just mine Mm-hmm. it's the organizations done right i may have an influence on what it looks like being the practitioner that i've got to be comfortable delivering it but the plan the program that's already in place it's going to be what the environment wanted if it's done right and stepping into a new role with the pre-existing program being there i could day one throw everything out and start afresh but from a workload perspective that's huge it's a lot of pressure day one to put myself under because then psychology stops until I've created the program. It could be a few weeks, could be longer. That could interrupt relationship building. So to try and make it a little bit more seamless as a transition in as a, as a staff member, it was like, right, let's keep going with what is already there because it's been accepted so far and let's just run with it. 
buys myself a little bit of time to see what the organization wants. Where does the program and what they're already doing align to their needs? And where can we further it? And maybe where can we shape it so it, it suits all of us and the direction we want to go in with psychology in the future? So that would be my advice is you don't have to come in day one and rip everything up because the likelihood is there is some really good stuff in there. There's never going to be a terrible program that's failing across the board. There's going to be really useful elements. And if you throw everything out, you lose the good stuff as well. Um, and you don't have to change it within the first week. You can run with it, learn as you go in to go right, where can we reposition it? And even if it's you running for a season, then go right, that didn't work. We're going to change that. At least it's less traumatic for everyone else in there. To go, well, we had this big program. You've come in in the middle of the season. Now we're doing something completely different. Oh, we've already done a workshop on this. Okay, well, we'll just stick with it, run the season, and then we can readjust that. Yeah, really good. Obviously, having fantastic conversations around working within um, club and organisations and, and how that works, um, especially as part of a multidisciplinary team. And when you're picking up from, I guess, when you're taking over from someone else, leaving and trying to make sure that your <clears throat> practice is able to perhaps match uh, up to what's been going on. And obviously, Again, we've had talks around when it when's best to change it and when's not, and I completely agree. And you know, mid-season that's not when you want to start throwing everything out the window. Um, just on you know, speaking about the work that you do within within clubs, it'd be great if you can perhaps speak about some of perhaps the main areas of support that you looked or main areas of development as well that you looked to provide for players within within the academies that you worked in. Yeah, so we've probably alluded to to some, but I'll I'll expand on what we've mentioned. Kind of transition was that passion area, but it's also kind of a marker of success within an academy of can we uh, produce athletes who are good enough quality to to go into the first team, or again be a, a kind of a production of the academy that then can go on and and have successful careers. In football and outside of football, importantly, it's not just that we're setting people up in football. They, they, we want to position them that if they aren't going to have a career, that they can actually cope and readjust and go and do something else, which is really important. So that was a, a big area of support. Um, and again, just how we manage people for the transition from a 18s, 21s into a first team. How do we prepare them for that? And then... As I've said, like that that release element as well of the psychology following them for a period of time where I'm not involved in release decisions and never really want to be involved in release decisions. So that when that athlete comes up to me and says, they're not going to renew my contract, I'm going to leave. I can be a little bit neutral in that and say, I didn't know the decision. I had no awareness. This is me hearing it firsthand from you and discussing kind of what the implications are going to be, understanding kind of what that athlete, their perception of it is going to be and where they're going to go. Um, some of that starts proactively as well. So mm -hmm. within the roles that I've had, we're having or I'm having conversations about what happens if you get released with players kind of early season, even though contract decisions aren't till mid or late season. Even the ones that are probably guaranteed or have already got pros still saying, right, if you if something happens, you get an injury, what's your backup? Because it's really important to be proactive with some of these elements so that we thought it through, even if we don't want to think about it, even if we is a little bit negative, it's important to go. Psychology isn't always this fluffy, positive, or optimistic side. 
some of it's actually being prepared for the worst. And if we have the conversation now, it'll enable you to manage the negative situation better when it does, if it does happen. Um, so again, not always to everyone's uh, passions to discuss kind of the worst, but actually it's really important that we're prepared for that. And that's the nature of some of the work that I've done. That, yeah, it's there for the positive bits. It's there for people that are struggling as well, but actually it's there when everything's going well to go, what, what happens if it doesn't? And not be doom and gloom, but just to nudge people to remain or remind them to be grounded. It's really important to go, you know what? It's fine, but what if? Just so they have a contingency plan in place so that we've had the conversation. Then if it happens, you go, fine, we, we didn't want it to happen. Never wished it on anyone, but we've we spoke about this. You can now better manage because we've already started some of this conversation about what you're going to do. Yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, really, really good stuff there. Um, I think what would be great is, of course, <clears throat> throughout the season, we've spoken about various topics, um, stuff around um, players struggling with identity came up consistently. We've had a lot around confidence. Um, <clears throat> and one of the stuff we spoke about, obviously, before we start recording this episode, it'd be great to start speaking about motivation, especially as we're starting to come into the winter months where it's definitely, well, for me and people I speak to, it's definitely harder to get yourself out of bed and get yourself up and uh, and working on your fitness, even if it's just, you know, like it is for me, just for like your health and well-being in general. Um, but just before we start getting into the nitty gritties behind how you can stay motivated and, and some of the things you can do to keep yourself motivated. Um, I just wanted to give you a chance to perhaps speak about and highlight any areas that you found young athletes in particular can, can struggle with, can struggle with. Um, and if you had any sort of advice that you want to share there. Yeah, there are loads of different bits that I could mention here. Some you've covered. I was like, right, what one bit could I pick so that it doesn't become too extensive? I think the biggest bit, and it's not even youth athletes, it's probably not even athletes, it's just everyone. I think we've got this constant battle of, right, something's happened and we want to push ourselves to think, oh, I have to think positive, I can't be negative. And I'm hearing that a lot. And I, I know that that's what I do. I know people in general do that. And I'm hearing it a lot from athletes about going, this happened, but I know I can't feel this way. I want to feel like positive. I need to be motivated or I need to be confident. And there's actually a big bit to that, that I'm finding myself having these conversations going, it's actually all right to feel how you feel and allowing yourself to feel the emotion. And I think that a lot of people, especially young athletes, have a, this idea that you can't feel that way. I can't feel frustrated. I can't feel aggressive. I can't feel really annoyed that something didn't go my way. And I'm actually finding myself have the conversations going, well, why are you frustrated? Why are you stressed? Why are you anxious? why you're nervous and then they say a really good reason and they go well how would you expect someone else to feel and they go nervous frustrated aggressive etc and I'm so why do you feel like you need to feel a different way from what you'd expect someone else to in that situation and having this conversation around it's it's the kind of acceptance commitment elements of saying it's actually all right to feel how you feel we mm. don't want to feel it for too long because if we feel really frustrated it's it will eventually have an impact if we're feeling that for days or hours or weeks. It's going to have an impact on performance and, and well-being at some point. But in the moment, in and around the moment, it's actually all right to experience that. And if you feel frustrated, feel frustrated. You, 
you've got a right to feel frustrated because it was a frustrating thing that happened rather than trying to fight it or bury your head and going, I can't feel this way. You actually feel it because if you experience it, you can then move on afterwards and you're not bottling up all this emotion. And I think that's where everyone's at. Again, I'm not speaking as an expert. I'm speaking as someone that does that still. Um, but yeah, it's it's this idea of going, it's all right. If you don't feel brilliant, that's fine. And then asking them questions going, how could you maybe change that? What's going to make you feel a little bit better? But not doing it immediately. Just come feel how you feel. And then when you're in the right place, then we move. Yeah. Yeah, I've sort of been having conversations similar to that um, with tennis athletes recently. So it's more than a performance setting, but it's like, yeah, you've maybe just double faulted. You can be annoyed at that, but you've got like 20 to 25 seconds before the next point starts. So feel the emotion and then you need to go on and accept what's just happened and and be able to move on. So totally... um, kind of relate to what you're talking about there and interesting that you're talking about it even outside of the performance context which I've not given much thought to because I can certainly let a frustrating thing ruin my day every now and then but I think it's I could probably learn from the stuff that I'm preaching it's like okay have the emotion but the important thing is how you respond to it like are you going to respond negatively and let it ruin your day or are you going to respond to it positively and put something in place to overcome it yeah there's an element to it where it goes that happened and like you just said but it doesn't define what happens next there's a fact that did happen I did feel that way but it doesn't have to then overspill to the next bit and you've just reminded me of something else there's there's probably a further step back we can take from that acceptance bit of when I've worked with athletes at all levels and people there's the the emotional labelling part, which probably is the step before that of just getting people to put a label, put an emotion, put a name to how they feel. Because people don't typically do that. Yeah. I, I know I, I'm i not brilliant at it still. And just going, if I ask someone how they feel, they'll go fine or they'll feel good or bad. I mean, actually, how do you feel? Can you label it? Can you put frustrated? Can you put anxious? Can you put nervous? Can you put excited? Can you put hopeless? Can you put fear, like something? Can you put an umbrella term on that sensation that you've got? Because then it helps increase that awareness. And then if we're labeling it, then we can do the next bit of going, right, I've noticed that. I'm going to feel that. Now we move on. Yeah. Yeah, really good. <clears throat> really like that. Um, Quite interestingly as well, and it's it's a bit, it's a bit off topic, but it's it's just funny because you're speaking about it, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And um, you just, I think, as a psychologist, you notice athletes referencing stuff like that quite a lot. Um, but there's a really good video on um, the guy who's he's, he's Mr. Olympian currently, um, Chris Bumstead, and he he did like a speech after he won his fifth Mr. Olympian mental in, in that area of sport. Um, but he spoke really well about how it, for this cycle, for where he was training and, and um, getting himself ready to come up and compete, he actually changed his perspective and his sport pattern around it. And he started, he speaks really well about feeling the emotions that he went through and actually when he was low, actually letting the emotions come out. Um, and he said that 
not only did it help him deal with and process the experience he was going through while he was building up to this competition, it also meant that, of course, luckily to him he did succeed, but it meant that he could actually really enjoy even the high even better because he'd actually he'd actually gone and rather than suppressing and numbing the emotions, he 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 felt the lows and now he was like really feeling the high. Um, so if any anyone's listening and they want to hear athletes making reference to j- exactly what you were just speaking about there, um, there's definitely a video to go and check out. Um, but so that's great. Another one as well that um, I sent to Brad because it was it was Djokovic talking about it as he speaks really well about using acceptance commitment therapy. Um, he make he makes um, reference like straight in the video about you know accepting emotions so another fantastic video and, and you can see like firsthand athletes that are actually doing this and putting you know sports psychology and, and sports psychology related skills into practice um so that's brilliant but it's worth noting that just when you mentioned that that even he smashes his racket up every yeah. and and smashes balls at ball kids so no one's perfect <laughs> no one is perfect sadly um <laughs> yeah yeah um <laughs> Just sort of uh, moving on then, and of course, because this is, I think, quite current due to where we are in the in the season, um, coming into the the winter months, and it's it's a lot darker, um, and it's it's where people traditionally start to struggle a little bit with their motivation. I thought it'd be fantastic, Ryan, if you could perhaps share perhaps some work that you've done previously with athletes when they've been struggling around motivation, and then perhaps some more. I guess like me- generic perhaps mental skills that they can, that people can perhaps look to try and utilize or, or look to perhaps read up on a little bit more that might help them with their motivation. Yeah so this is exciting because it's always nice talking about different areas of what we do. Um, I think it's really important to start with kind of what motivation is yeah. and I know that people are going to be like oh, boring like I'm going to give a rubbish definition but I'll try and keep it fun. Um, so Really simply, motivation, the best way I can describe it is is this desire to to do something. Mm. But actually, that's fine. And it links nicely to the emotions we've just spoke about. Because motivation's brilliant whilst we feel good. And then linked to what you've just said, like coming into the winter, we've got a lot on. It's kind of the middle of the season for some people. It's darker nights. We just don't fancy doing. And then that's when the motivation drops. Because we're linking it to this want, this feeling that we would like to do something, this desire. And then we lose motivation. So again, motivation, fine. But actually, we need to think about the the bits we want to do in terms of commitment. Not being motivated, but being committed. Because committed and commitment is actually doing an action. So to bring it to life. I can be really, really motivated to go to the gym until I get to the gym door. And then it's actually commitment that makes me go through the door and do something. I can be sat here and be really, really motivated to go and run a marathon. Doesn't mean I'm going to go and start training tomorrow. I just have a motivation to do that. It's the actual committed actions. It's this commitment that's actually going to see me do something. And that's really important because it changes, even though it's a slight tweak of words, it actually changes the emphasis. Mm. I'm, I'd like to be motivated to get run a marathon versus I'm committed to running a marathon. It's a slight tweak of the narrative, but actually it's really, really impactful. 
So if you're going to set goals, we're obviously going to speak about goals because it's motivation. But if you're going to set some targets, some objectives that you want to achieve, think about how you're wording them. Because if it's a motivation, and we're linking it to a, a, a desire, a feeling, a thought. But if it's a commitment, you're committing to it. That's a little bit more intensive. There's a little bit more ownership there and responsibility. You go, this is something I'm going to do. I mean, now I have to see it out. And all of a sudden, that debate that you have on the morning where you just don't fancy it, well, motivation is going to come and go. But if I've committed to it and I'm determined, then I'm going to stick to it. Even if I don't feel like doing it, I'm still going to go out the door. And I think that's where everyone, I'm not even going to say some people, that's where everyone who's like, ah, I'm really motivated and then it doesn't happen and then we get frustrated that we can't do that new thing or we haven't done it and we've missed a few days of training or whatever it is. I think that's where we all get caught up and you're like, oh, I'm linking it to my feeling in the moment. And if I don't fancy doing it in the moment, it doesn't happen. But if we, I've committed to it, it goes beyond my mood, goes beyond what my day's been like. This is something that I do and it's setting the standard. Um, so we've kind of linked on some of the little techniques there. They're the conversations that I'm having with athletes. The other bits are not even really linked to motivation but it directly impacts it in yeah. that it's removing barriers because that is the biggest issue with motivation or, or commitment you can be really really committed and a barrier comes along and then that stops you doing it and when i get to speak to students when i get to speak to athletes i always say that i still have barriers even being a sports psych and i know kind of the two of you guys will as well what it means is that my barriers, my excuses for not doing have to be really, really good because I've got some of the psych skills to counter it. So mm -hmm. it means my excuses are just superb for why I'm not going to do it because they have to be because I've got the skills to battle easier ones. Um, so little barriers for me if I'm if I want to go running in the morning and it's dark nights, it's winter, it's going to get cold. I'm really not going to fancy it when I wake up and it's pitch black and it's maybe six in the morning really difficult to get yourself out to do it but if I've laid my kit by the door and I get up go downstairs put my kit on and go out the door before I've really woken up properly then I'm out I'm already out the door and then it's really hard to back out because I'm not going to run to the end of the street and they'll be like, oh, I don't fancy it this morning and then go home the likelihood is if I get out the door I'm going to do the run because the barrier is oh, just don't fancy it or it's cold or it's easy for me to stay in bed because I'm going to spend 10 minutes working out where my kit is and what happens if I can't get the right socks and your brain's going to give you all these really good excuses so my work around is the kit's there I know it's there I've not got the excuse of oh, I can't find it because it's at the bottom of the stairs so you've got to get up and out and, and, and it's little bits that that's kind of speaking from like an exercise from like a, a running perspective but there's loads of bits that you can do as an athlete to go right what are the barriers because that's really important what are the excuses you're giving yourself and then are they rational excuses and is there something we can do about them can we remove them as a barrier or do we have to have a good response to that that when you your brain kicks in and, and goes oh yeah we're not going to do that because it's nice and cozy or it's comfortable or it's going to be tiring or you might make a mistake and be embarrassed and stuff have we got some really good skills to counter that? Have we got some good ways of working? It might be put your kit at the bottom of the stairs. 
it might be telling a friend that you're going to turn up at that time to do that training session because then it's really hard to back out when they're going to turn up and you're going to feel bad for them going on their own so it's using them as little nudges to make sure that you still get out the door and do whatever it is that you want to do yeah that's great I think for me it's definitely one that I utilize a lot is telling people I'm going to do something because then I can't stand the idea that someone's going to turn around and be like how did that go and I'll be like oh, I didn't bother doing it you know yeah I think that's a, it's a really great one yeah. and definitely one that really works for me like I used it yesterday um so yeah one that works for me really really well um yeah brilliant uh, I think as well like you, you touched on it too but another a key a key skill that I always find really helps is is, is when you do you, you use and you utilize goal setting to its full extent um, and I don't just mean doing like the oh like write a smart goal like of course smart goals are brilliant and they're, they're better than just writing a random goal but it's actually like using them properly um, so that they can actually help you know keep that motivation going so for me you know a real big part for me is using the small process goals not just having your your midterm or even like a short-term goal it's, it's brilliant but actually it's like what are the ones that you can put in throughout the week so that you're consistently working towards even like a short-term goal uh, i think yeah goal setting is just such an important one that i just wanted to to bring up myself um, yeah just to, to add on to that again we're leaning into some of the acts uh, elements here but again have your goal whether it's you follow one of the structures whether it is you just have a sentence and going that's what i want and um, I would always ask an athlete or ask someone, okay, why? Why mm. is that something that you want to achieve? Because it's fantastic having that as a goal, having that as a committed action. What's the meaning of that to you? Why is that something you want? And again, you can extend that by asking additional questions of what is that going to bring you? If you get to that level, so if I do a sub four hour marathon, for example, what is that actually going to bring doing that? What's the worth of the goal? Who am I going to be if I achieve that? Is that going to help some of my values? Is it going to help me feel good about myself? Which is fine. You can you can feel want to feel good about yourself. Is it going to help maybe a performance element? Is it going to help kind of a, a well-being or a health element? Is it just socially going to give you a bit of a boost? Because, you know, that's quite a good marker and you can have a little bit of ego driving that as well. Like that's fine, it's but it's asking that deeper level of going, yeah, brilliant, you've got a goal, that's fantastic, but why? How's it going to change you? What's it going to bring? Mm -hmm. Because they're the bits that are going to pull you through when you don't fancy it. When you're like, ah, oh, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but remember what it's going to bring. Remember, yeah. you're going to feel this way if you achieve it. That's something to strive for, not the the goal itself. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Like finding finding your why is, mm -hmm. is so important. 100%. Brad, is there anything you want to add in there? No, I just thought I probably need to start leaving my gym gear at my bedroom door because I've been <laughs> sat off in the morning recently. So cheers for that, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I saw you write some notes around that and I was like, uh, definitely Brad's taken that, that one to, to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Just before we move on, Ryan, I'm, in, I'm interested to know when, when your marathon is because you keep, keep talking about it. So, so I, I've done one in the past. I did it pre-COVID at Manchester. Um, I use it as an example because I've still got this aim to go sub four. So I did it. First one was four hours, 12 minutes. I think it ended up being it was 12 or eight minutes. I probably should know, but it was like three, four years ago now. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to just to 
dip under four hours because again it's a, it's a decent marker for going around a marathon yeah, so yeah i'm like yeah um but yeah, i've just not not been able to get into it again again motivation hasn't been there for just not fancying it not setting a, a well-defined target to do so and mm. not an excuse but kind of just some of the facts as we were saying like workload and it's a lot to commit to you're talking weeks of training and it's hours yeah. running each week and that's a lot to fit in and around a busy life as well so there has to be some give and take um oh yeah there will be one on the horizon at some point maybe next year that would be yeah. good as a as a target for me off the back of this so yeah yeah great well well best of luck for that right um yeah but moving through questions we've uh, only got a couple more for you which i'm sure you'll be relieved to hear because i always felt we absolutely grill our guests when they come on um but just the next one because we haven't actually spoken about it yet um is that you're, you're now a lecturer in sport and exercise psychology um and i think we've you've given loads of great advice but i think what would be great is if you could perhaps share some of the key skills that you think students should focus on developing themselves um in order to better support athletes when they go into the applied field yeah so let's speak about it in like sports science in general or even coaching or any role not just a psychology lens but whatever course you're on if you want to go into an industry obviously it's going to be really relevant for sport though um the biggest bits are then it's important to have the knowledge it is important to have the understanding because you can draw from that it enables you to be researched and informed that's really important so pay attention in the lectures read around the topics that's that is key the biggest bit is to develop the social skills mm. it's to actually be able to have conversations with people which is important for all roles in like sports science and medicine in strength and conditioning kind of as a physiotherapist etc it's really important as a psychologist to actually be able to hold a conversation with someone and to to listen and to kind of a whole, be able to maintain a conversation as well you don't want it to be awkward where you're like i've got two questions and then that's it you want to be able to chat because that's where people build relationships from it's where people trust you it's where people end up giving information to you that you can then help support so it's something that I always tell students to go and develop those skills. Sometimes they're deemed soft skills, but ultimately, yeah, go and do the social skills because if you can't do that, it doesn't matter what you know, you're not going to stay in the room very long when you get into a club or an organisation because it's not going to work because you're not going to be able to do the other bit that isn't your job, per yeah. se. The other key bit that I always tell students is it builds on that knowledge and understanding bit is that is fine but you're going to go into a world where not everyone's going to have a degree or a master's in the area that you have nor should they be expected to to have a conversation with you so you need yeah. to know the the knowledge but you need to be able to translate and that's the best word i've got for it you need to be able to translate what you know so that other people can understand it mm. so that I say to the students that I get to lecture now, if we're doing theories and models and stuff, I'll, I'll present the information and then I'll give them five minutes and go write that again based on what you've heard so that a 12 year old can understand it. Because if you can do that, one, you can tell a 12 year old it, which is really important for the job. But the second part is you know it well enough, because if you know the, the information well enough, you can simplify it. If you're struggling to simplify it, it's probably highlighting that you don't know the information well enough. Yeah. 
So that's something that that I really emphasize going, of course, it's important to have the knowledge, but can you actually speak to people who don't yeah. have degrees in your area? And if you can't, you need to find a way to work that around because a lot of the time in organizations, I've been the psychologist, which means that no one else has the knowledge that I have. Again, maybe an expert, you could, you could deem that how you want, but the important bit on that is that no one else has the knowledge that I have and therefore, I need to be able to communicate with them. Yeah. And it has to be simple. I have to be able to translate it. Yeah, no, excellent. I, I think mean, that's, you know, the, the two key ones that I, obviously knowledge is, is is always going to be really important, of course. But I think those last two that you mentioned are ones that like I've really valued the more I've got into my work, the more I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's good that I've done social, like, it's good that I've put myself in social situations where I've had to, develop that develop that skill that they call it a soft skill but really it's it's so crucial because we're working with people so you need to be able to have that social communications that's that's excellent and and again I think when it came to once I've completed my master's I was sick of writing in a scientific language all the time Uh, and of course it's really important to be able to do it and it's really important to be able to understand how to you know because psychology is a science so it's really important to understand how to process it and get it down in a scientific way but I did always find myself thinking like I want to do the applied stuff. So like, I, why am I constantly writing theoretical based papers or or um, case studies, etc. Um, when when really like I want to go and yeah, I want to speak to to people in general. I want to use non scientific language because all you do is you lose people when you start speaking that way. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm great that you, you highlighted that, and I've always I've always felt that it's something that should be prioritised a little bit more. When it comes to the academic side of um of sports psychology uh, yeah. anything from you brad yeah i totally agree i don't think it's something that i got enough of going through uni and probably we we done the same course so that probably says a lot in terms of the masters but i find that such a useful tool now like being able to explain theory in lay terms to like mm-hmm. young kids or clients and then they go oh yeah that actually makes sense like rather than going into self-determination theory and the complete ins and outs of it i can explain it using a metaphor or something like that and then they go oh that's yeah i agree with that that makes sense so something that i've definitely developed over my my training and something that i've found is really really useful for buy-in and and kind of can make make you look like you know what you're talking about so yeah yeah excellent um Obviously, we're not, we've got to the stage now where you're, you're giving advice. Obviously, that one was more targeted towards people that are looking to to get in and, and gain more experience within our profession. But um, taking it back to the more uh, generic style questions, that's going to be le- less specialised in, in the sport and exercise psychology area. But what are your three tips for looking after your own well-being? Uh, we mentioned at the outset, like self-care and mm. And kind of we're using that interchangeably with well-being. But if we're looking after well-being, we're caring about ourselves. And I don't even know if there's a tip in there, but it's really important to do that. <laughs> that would be tip one. Like look after yourself. Um, kind of tip two on that would be understanding how best you can look after yourself. That's really important. And again, that's a discussion between you and you to to sit down and and just think right. What actually? When do I feel good? What gives me a break? When do I give myself time off? What does time off look like? Because I'm going to be doing something 
even though I'm giving myself time off. So what's that activity or activities? Um, if I need to recharge, what does recharging look like? Does it look different in different domains? So if I need to recharge at work, what can I do? If I need to recharge at home, what does that look like? Um, so they're kind of my key bits. And there's also an element of protecting the time that you've got. So if you call it self-care time, if you call it time off, if you call it me time, whatever it is, there's an element of protecting it. But again, not getting so sensitive that from eight till 10 on a Friday morning, let's say, that's my me time. Well, there's an element of life not working that way. So it's understanding that there has to be time in the day or the week or the month where I give myself these recharge moments, I give myself this time off, this break, this self-care element, but actually understanding that it can move because different weeks, especially in our professions and roles, they're going to change. And if I'm in an academy as a player, staff, whatever, that time isn't going to be consistent every single week. So I've kind of got to be comfortable with that. That I can't shoehorn, go, no, this is my protection time. Oh, I can't do that meeting because I'm looking after myself. Well, no, actually, it's important you do the meeting because you're getting paid to work. But it's understanding that it can move and you can flex where that time is. And maybe you miss a couple of days of, of that self-care time. And again, that's not wrong because it might be that for those couple of days, you had to miss it. It didn't fit. But it's important to know and be aware of and notice that you've missed it and make sure that you do catch up on that at some point because otherwise you'll you will eventually burn out um so again that would be my best answer is have self-care time know what that looks like and whether it looks different for different roles and again not be so protective that it has to happen at this point actually it can flex and sometimes you might not need an hour you might just need half an hour well that's fine so again being being really flexible and fluid with it. They're my three bits. Yeah, excellent. Really, really, really good advice and stuff that I, I reckon I can probably take on board myself and start utilizing it, so that's great. Um, the last last question we've got for you, and of course it's one that we ask all of all of our um, guests that come onto, this, onto the podcast, but have you got any advice for young academy footballers or young athletes in general? So let's go as global as we can. Let's think about like confidence. Let's think about emotions. Let's think about like motivation. Some of the topics we spoke about. The lasting message would be a lot of it's going to come and go all of the time. And again, we to an element, we kind of have to be all right with that. That's that's the way of the world that when some days we're not going to fancy it. Some days we're going to be absolutely flying um, and understanding that and acknowledging that is is good. Because then we're not shocked when it happens. We're not left questioning, go, oh, wow, why do I feel low today? And, and I was really high yesterday. It's been like, okay, this is how I feel. And as Brad was saying, well, then we understand when do I perform best? And then how do I get to that point? Sometimes I'll speak about it, but as about that with athletes, about being in like a neutral state. Going, when, when are you neutral? When's that state where we can reset, we can go back to this center point, and then we can go and perform from that? Um, and again, that looks different for everyone. Some people that could be feeling really happy and excited and some people could perform really well when they're frustrated and aggressive. So that neutral moves. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say kind of 
understand that bit that you might have it, you might not, you might feel a certain way, but it's knowing yourself. Um, the other bit kind of on confidence would be it's fantastic to have. And of course, we want to feel confident all the time. But again, being on the edge of confidence, but if you feel like you're really confident all of the time, that's like a little flag for you to notice and go, hmm, probably in a comfort zone too much. Probably not challenging myself. And therefore, go and find a challenge. To be on the edge of confidence that you're not kind of making loads of mistakes all of the time because we want to feel good about our ability and our belief. But go and find some challenge just to make sure that you're not settling. Because in football, you're in an environment where if you settle for too long and stay in your comfort zone for too long, that might mean that you miss out on the next opportunity someone else might get ahead of you so there is an element of keeping progressing keeping on pushing keeping on that edge of confidence and going i might make mistakes but that's all right as long as i learn something so that i can better prepare myself and i can do something more than i could and keep pushing that boundary of confidence that would be kind of my other message to leave people on no excellent Thank you very much that, Ryan. I mean, appreciate all the advice you've given throughout this whole episode. Obviously, it's nice um, that you've closed off with that. So I think that's probably some of the best that's been given across across this whole last um, last hour. So thank you very much. Um, just before we wrap things up, I think it's it's a chance for us to hand the the, the episode over to you and just see if there's anything you'd like to speak about. And then this is your space to do so. Yeah, I think let's just emphasise some of the bits I've just finished with there, but some of the threads that we've mentioned all the way through. Of, it's going to be an up and down experience within academy football, but it doesn't mean that you can't manage. You can get through to where you want to um, by having a good idea of what it is you want to achieve. And, and again, fleshing out some of those, those whys. Why is it important and what you're going to become? But it's also important to acknowledge it's not a straight line. And it's an industry of people's opinions. Mm. So it might not always go the way that you want it to. Um, but as I said, kind of make the most of it. Whenever I've spoke to athletes, they always say that it was the best experience they had being in like academy football. So enjoy it, even though it is stressful, even though it is challenging. Again, make the most of it and take in as much as you can as well, because the lessons you're learning now about resilience, about how to cope, about recovering from setbacks, they will really help you irrespective of what career you go on to. Yeah, I think, Ryan, if you wouldn't mind um, promoting your podcast as well, because I think for any trainee psychologist or psychologist or anyone working in the field of sport, it's something that they should listen to because in Ryan's podcast, they, Ryan and Tom talk about stuff that, that you don't get a lecture on at your, in your master's. So, Ryan, if, if you wouldn't mind, mate, I think people could benefit from that. Yeah, appreciate you dropping that in there, Brad. So we're on the In Confidence podcast. So In Confidence podcast, it's on Spotify, it's on CastBox, it's on the, all these different bits. We recorded six episodes as part of kind of our first season. Uh, and then life got in the way of, of kind of myself and Tom of the kind of full-time roles. But we're looking back to hopefully going and recording the second season into the new year. Um, and as Brad, you correctly said there, we're trying to discuss topics that, no one's really speaking about or we're only hearing a couple of colleagues on zoom calls and teams calls 
chat about them and we're trying to take them to more of a public space. So yeah, we've spoke about consultancy. We've spoken about some of the challenges of self-care, challenges of applied practice, just to help trainees out that you don't feel like you're on your own. You don't feel like you're isolated, that we know that these are things that, and thoughts that people have because we have them as trainees and, and we still have some of them now. So again, that's what we're trying to shed light on. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, and yeah, I can also endorse it. It's a really good podcast. So definitely, definitely go and listen to it if you can. Um, but yeah, I think we'll we'll wrap things up there um, for today, Ryan. Obviously, I could chat to you about this for hours, um, but we really appreciate you coming on today. And I'm sure our listeners um, would have really valued this episode. Um, I know I certainly have. So thank you very much. And thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. Anything you want to add in, Brad, before we close things off? Nah, just brilliant chat, mate. It's good to get insight and a, a bit of uh, CPD on my part, um, learning from your own experiences. So hopefully our listeners have taken something from it as well, whether that's academy players or trainee psychologists, I'm sure could certainly learn a lot. Perfect. Cheers for having me, guys. Thanks. No problem, mate. <laughs>